Yeah, some stuff we may have to decline to comment too much. We they, our clients make us sign NDAs and that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, but we'll good. We can talk that. about that too. <laughs> <laughs> This is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon, bringing to you the best in news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen, and I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. So we've all been driving through bourbon country and been amazed at the rickhouses that paint the country landscape. But what goes into building and engineering those? Music Construction has a long family history in the whiskey business with their family dating back to building buildings and multiple rickhouses for Jack Daniels. And today, the average size of rickhouses is reaching around 50,000 barrels. And that presents engineering challenges compared to those older 20,000 barrel ones in terms of weight load, airflow, temperature control, and much more. So we brought back on their president, Donald Blinko, and he brought his chief engineer, Kevin Aldred, to talk about what goes into building a rickhouse. We talk about different wood species, exterior metals, precise airflow design needs, and humidity considerations. But we also dive into the cost because a rickhouse, it can run up into the millions of dollars these days. Overall, music has been the name in construction around Bardstown and has a reputation in these time-honored warehouses. With that, enjoy this week's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Tom Pacey, who writes me on fredminnick.com. When tasting whiskey, we pick up on notes that bring to mind foods we've experienced. Do you ever experience the opposite? Eating a food and it brings to mind a specific whiskey? That, Tom, is a brilliant question, and this happens to me all the time. But not as much lately because I'm finding myself uh, dodging the really fatty foods that are littered with the flavors of bourbon. I'm talking Almond Joys, Mounds, Snicker Bars, any kind of like fudgy cake. By the way, I probably should not have done this above the char because now I'm wanting to go beeline to my house and have this like flourless like cake that's in the refrigerator Oh, a nice cold chocolate flourless cake. Mm-hmm. Or maybe a pot of creme. Anyway, back to Tom's question. <laughs> uh, sorry about that, folks. But yeah, this happens all the time. There are two flavors that really come to me when I'm tasting it. It'll make me think of the whiskey. And it's coconut. Coconut is one of them. And coconut always reminds me of an Alabama product called Detling. Like I taste a little coconut and a lot of the Detling products. It's a small little craft distiller, but the coconut flavor that you get like in an Almond Joy is very similar to, to Detling. And chocolate, and you know, there's probably about 30 brands I can think of that have chocolate in it, but there was a particular release of Booker's that always had like this big old velvety chocolate note. And someone had recently reached out to me, my thoughts on it, so I looked up my tasting notes on it. It was a 2016 release. So, yeah, I mean, Booker's has tends to have chocolate and has a little marzipan cornbread in there for me. So anytime I taste that and, and you know, speaking of cornbread, when I taste cornbread, I mean, that opens up a whole lot of bourbons for me, young and old alike. So absolutely. It does have that effect on me, but it's usually in the sweet department. 
I mean, I'm not eating a big juicy steak and thinking, oh my gosh, this tastes like barrel batch 25. But, you know, whereas like in wine, I find wine, wine notes come a little bit more alive in everyday foods, like oyster shell will remind me of like champagnes and so forth. But at any rate, it's out there. You really do need to uh, taste a lot in order to experience that. But you're also, unless you're like on an incredibly disciplined regimen, you'll probably gain like 30, 40 pounds, which got to be careful because there's a lot of sweet notes in bourbon, a lot of sweet notes. And that's where I got myself in trouble. That's going to do it for this week's Above the Char. If you want to be like Tom, hit me up on fredminnick.com. That's fredminnick.com. Hit the contact button and let me know your question. If I like it, I'll read it on the air. Until next week, cheers. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. And they're off for another Gift 270-2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Welcome back. It's another episode of Burn Pursuit coming at you. Kenny, Ryan, and Fred all here today in a We're warehouse, here. but not a, mm-hmm. not a Rick house. But it'll be fun to be able to talk about this as a conversation because we've had one of the people here that is a guest on and a prior guest. But the one thing I do love about these conversations is we get to talk about another aspect of the bourbon industry that I wouldn't say it's overlooked because you can't not see it when you go and visit a distillery. There's probably the most majestic thing you do see. And it doesn't really get the, I guess you can say the tension that it might deserve of what actually goes into engineering a rickhouse. Oh, these things are pure beauty. It's kind of like if you look at study the Romans with like how they built things, it's like, how do they do that? How do they do all that stuff? And like look at the pyramids, you're like, oh my gosh, how'd they do that? And you, I've brought like people who build homes, who we're, are in construction. We're, we're now con- 
comparing rickhouses to the Egyptian pyramids. I just make sure we got that. Uh, I, I was going to get there, but you know, to me, they are. I'm they sure are, our guests love to hear that. By the they way, they are things of beauty. And people who are in construction, you take them inside a warehouse, and they'll, they'll say something like, "I haven't seen a plumb bob since the '60s," or something like that. It's just such a fascinating way to build and design. And really, it's the best way to age whiskey, not palatization. Sorry. Not, you can say it all you want. Not a fan well, of the palates. We'll get into it. And who would have thought, like, we're in a day and age where actually consumers are, like, chasing, like, locations and warehouses and, like, mm-hmm. tiers and all these things. And, like, you know, distilling has been romanticized so much. And when you get into this, it's – I'm not taking any away from distillers, but it's – a repeatable process and it's a you know pretty consistent thing but where the beauty and the product is is in the barrel maturation the romance and, and whatnot and the romance and yeah. it, we've had them on before but i'm really excited to to bring them back and go deep into all things rick houses yeah so today on the show bringing back another guest from the past from episode 137 is donald blinko from music construction he's the president there but also we have another guest as well, and that's Kevin Aldred, who is their chief engineer. So, fellas, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, thank Glad you for having here. us back. For sure, for sure. So, Donald, we'll start with you first because you've been here. So, kind of give folks a, a kind of quick background about who you are, how you got into the construction business, and, and namely where you started really looking. Because music, by far, is the name in construction for Rick Houses, built in Bardstown as well as across the country. So, kind of talk about history of the company and sort of like where you, you came into it as well. My great-grandfather started the company back in 1937. I guess it was right after Prohibition. He came to Bargetown and was selling distillation equipment. When he sold it, no one was able to install it. He volunteered to do that, and that basically kind of turned itself into music construction, and we've been kind of going ever since. My father kind of married into the music family, and he's been carrying it on, and my sister and brother and I have kind of been in there, and, and we've been fortunate to surround ourselves with a lot of great people. And, you know, Kevin's at the top of the list there, and yeah, just created a lot of racial relationships with the bourbon industry, a lot of fantastic people in that industry, and we've kind of grown with the industry. We've been able to hire a lot of great talent, both in the office and in the field, and, and kind of maintain those relationships. And then, you know, I've got a college degree from U of L. I started doing construction heck, when I was like maybe even 10 years old or something. I've been exposed to it my whole life and worked out in the field, so kind of see how that can go, and that's kind of aided in me understanding how the construction process works. So, yeah, that's how I've gotten into it. Lincoln, my brother-in-law, and you are related, but he tells about, his, I think it's his grandfather, you know, building all the rickhouses for Jack Daniels. Talk about how many rickhouses he built back in, like, the 50s, 60s, and whatnot. Oh, we've got old pictures at our office. I, Kevin, I don't know if you remember how many we've built. It's like 50-plus down there. In fact, my brother and sister were both born uh, yeah, he moved in Tennessee. There, yeah, they were down there for, like, five years. Uh, my father was just telling the story uh Actually, maybe yesterday that I think it was a Motlow who used to own Jack Daniels came up to my grandfather and said, you're going to come down and build us warehouses. And this was back like in the, I don't know, 50s. And my grandfather was like, no, nah, we're not going down there. I mean, this is back in the day where traveling was a was an issue. And he just kept beating the door down until finally we went down. And the Motlow fellow was a, maybe a senator or something of the state. So he was able to get permitting and kind of got us all set up. And once we got down there, we just kept building. I'm sure a lot of those are standing to this day. The other thing is you all have a big name in just the bourbon construction business. Correct me if I'm wrong. Did you all have like a patent on the ricking system or something like that? 
Well, we do have a, a patent and several others kind of patent pending on some things that, you know, we used to build these by hand, kind of like you all mentioned the uh, pyramids, oh, they built those by hand, <laughs> but they kind of finally figured out that there's an easier way and they kind of came up with a jig system that, that we can move around and, and basically it, it makes it a lot safer to build. It makes it more, you know, you make sure that all your posts are plumb, you know, because if you start stacking these posts on top of each other and you get out of plumb, it's a major issue. Speed of construction, you know, labor becomes an issue. So having build with more equipment makes it a lot better. So it's kind of better all the way around to, to have that jig trailer. By the way, a little history for you. Frederick Stitzel was the one who actually patented the rickhouse back in the I think, 1880s. I don't remember the exact date. Can you fact check him, Donald? No, I, I, I've seen that as well. Friends, right? I don't yeah. know the exact date. But yeah, we've got a we got a copy of the sketch for oh, awesome. their patent. Yeah, there we go. Well, Kevin, kind of give us a little bit about your background as well, sort of engineering and everything like that, and how you got into the warehousing business. Well, I, I graduated from the University of Kentucky in 1981. December. That's much better than U of L. So I'll go. Oh, I'll I forgot. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, I did go to L for a couple of years, too. So, Oh, okay. You can play both sides. I got to play I both sides. House divided. After school, went to work in nuclear power industry. That was in North Carolina. Came back home, worked for an architect, and then about 90, no, 87, I went to work for Jim Beam. I uh, worked for Beam for eight years, and while I was there, I met Donald's dad, Tommy. What were you doing at Jim Beam? I was a project manager, project engineer for all the capital projects. Okay. And one of my primary responsibilities was taking care of the rickhouses. So through experiencing problems and learned a lot about how they work, how they're built, Tommy bugged me for several years to come work for him. And in 95, I, I took the leap and went to music construction. Wow. There we go. So those warehouses at Beam were built by the Musics, I guess? No, they weren't, actually. But Tommy was a the go-to guy even then for all construction work in the Beam family. So, uh, yeah, that's how we became friends. and you got been, poached. That's the easiest yeah, way to comes down Yeah, got poached. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sure, our friends at Jim Beam would love to hear that story. Yeah. Let's dive into it a little bit. So I think we'll venture off this into a little bit as we start going, because now we start seeing monster warehouses that are holding like 50,000 barrels. Correct. But let's kind of dial it back a little bit. So we'll say we'll say we've we want to we want to house something that has, you know, we'll say on, on average, what are we looking at? Like 15, 25. Is that kind of what your a, a standard is nowadays? Is that standard started to change? Originally, Rick houses. The construction was kind of dictated. The size and locations were dictated by the insurance companies. It's what they would insure. Approximately 20,000 barrels. Each Rick house had to be 250 feet apart, had to have berms between them. Some of the stuff we still do today. Really, the basis for what the building code allows us to do. I forget where I was going with that. I've started reading the Kentucky Building Code, so I know a little bit about that (laughs) nowadays, about having to have at least like trenches around it and all this other kind of stuff. But that's a little bit different from where it was a long time ago, because a lot of these that you can see, I know I've been on Wild Turkey's campus and other places like that. Warehouses are, I could, I mean, I could almost stretch two arms across and and touch each other. Correct. And those were, I guess, technically grandfathered into it. Yeah, they're grandfathered in. And their first two warehouses of Wild Turkey, really good warehouses. Over 100 years old, still in pretty good shape. Where did the transition go from, all right, 2025 is the standard, but now we're going to go into 50,000? And what was the like thought process about, obviously, they want to consolidate and keep them all in one space, but how from an engineering or you know building standpoint can you say like, okay, we can provide the insurance to 
the peace of mind that this is going to be just as safe as, you know, that. And it's also going to produce a quality product that, you know, we're used to with these smaller ricks. The growth and size came from Jim Beam. They had the idea that, hey, can we build two warehouses back to back? And yeah, we can do anything your insurance let us do. And they said, don't worry. <laughs> how much money you got, yeah. right? Yeah, that's kind of yeah. how it all starts. That's the idea for the 50,000 barrel warehouse. Well, how big can you build it? And we went to the state with that question, how big can we build it? And we we worked out a pretty decent plan, I think, for building these warehouses as big as we do. I've been to zoning meetings when these they're conducting whether or not a neighborhood wants to allow a warehouse or something. Do you all ever have to go and defend your plans to local governance? Yeah. I mean, especially out of state, whenever, whenever we go out of state. But originally, we started building these rick houses, and they're of such size, and they're constructed of wood, and they house a flammable liquid. They were outside the realm of the mm. Kentucky building code or any building code and because of, you got flammable liquid. But because... They are non-occupied buildings. We get some grace, and we keep them separated, and we do the berming, and we prevent any spill from going off property, things like that. Actually, the state head of the state building code at the time was, this is 90, 91, when this, we started building rock houses in Kentucky again. Yeah, there was a, there was a period of time where nothing yeah. was really happening, right? Yeah, so. the, the industry was flat through the 80s, and um, I don't know that anything was spilled after 1970. Ninety-one. So we worked with the head of the state building official, and he worked up the rules that we go by. They weren't part of the building code still. So every time we wanted to build a rick house, we had to go before a board of architects and engineers and prove our plans and get. Wow. I was about to say, and has the Kentucky Building Code been sort of a model that you take to other states when you are doing this? Because it's like, if is what you said is like they don't have right, they don't have, right. they've never seen this before. Yes, yes, and no. We we kind of bring it to them. We don't necessarily say we don't want them to think that we're smarter in Kentucky than they are. <laughs> we don't really bring it up, that, but we we bring them the rules and their common sense rules. And 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 so far we have not been denied anywhere we went. Gotcha. Knock on wood. Yeah. I guess from you know you had a twenty twenty five thousand barrel rick and you're going to a fifty thousand. Does the same like design process or thought or like does that translate to a bigger or do you have to like completely like reengineer it or no? It's ba- it's a pretty. S- it's pretty simple structure, actually. It really is. And you break it down to smaller components. Now, we did do things like add additional bracing, stuff like that to handle that massive amount of weights or handling. If you get any unsymmetrical loading of the structure, you need to have it braced. So we always have a lot of bracing and make sure it doesn't move. And we so far, out of 200 warehouses, we haven't had one move yet. So that's how many you've built since 91 or whatever? Yes. Mm-hmm. Across how many states? Well, most of them have been in Kentucky, but... It's been a handful of Rock, states. Yeah, rock-supported buildings. We've done one in Texas. We've done in Wisconsin. We've done numerous projects where we just do rocks inside of the existing building. I think what people rave about you is like the, the speed that you all are able to build these rickhouses. What, I guess, allows you all to do that? Like they just say the time that you all can, you can build it in half the time as some other contractors can or something. That's that comes what from we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. comes from Tommy's innovation and he's always thinking of a better way to do stuff. Using equipment rather than manpower, things like that. We, It's, it's just made a, a, a real streamlined process. And we're always looking 
to improve. Yeah. Mm. I think that's probably one of the, the coolest things that I see, especially like when you go visit Bardstown Bourbon Company, there's from what I think is what I've heard is you all haven't left the property since they put the first shovel in the ground. No. So the cool thing about when you drive through there, there's always a rick house that's kind of being built and you get to see the skeleton. And we've seen it across Heaven Hill as well. It's like when you see that skeleton being built before you get the metal cladding on the side, it's truly a, a remarkable sight for a bourbon geek to kind of look at it. Now, when you talk about the processes, it's like when I walk, when I sit there and look at it, there's some equipment, but there's not like hundreds of people or, you know, massive teams or anything. It's just like, it's usually like a handful of people that look like they're, they're doing this. So how do you go around, kind of talk about just like the process for just beginning that and, and how, I mean, is it pouring footers? Is it pouring the base and then kind of building on top of it? Kind of just talk about that a little bit too. Well, we got to start with the plan, you know, and, and the site plan. And if you're going to build a bigger house, you have to sprinkle it. So kind of getting all that together with these big sites, you got to get like environmental involved. So it takes several months to kind of get to check all the boxes and make sure you don't have environmental concerns you have to mitigate. But once all that's done, you know, soil bearing testing, we know how to design our foundations. Then, you know, it's like any building, you start pouring foundations and you kind of go up with the wood structure and put the skin on it. And then you, towards the end, you're putting electronics or sprinkler systems in it. It's like Kevin said, I guess we've done it enough. It's kind of secondhand nature to us. We're all like amazed you by it. You're like, this is just, this, just Tuesday. This <laughs> like, is just ah, Tuesday. it's just another rickhouse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've got a lot of great people, you know, that's what it takes. And it does, you know, on a big warehouse, like we're building as big as 58,800 barrels is what the building code allows us to build it we'll have probably at least 40 people on a job site when you're actually framing the the wood structure that's where it takes most of the labor on the construction side can you go through the materials that you're using to build a warehouse what are the the various options when it comes to flooring planks uh siding etc Kevin could probably answer this better, but big picture, I mean, it's your standard kind of concrete, you know, 3,000 PSI. You know, you get rebar in there, and then it gets to the wood where you got a lot of variability because different wood species have different structural characteristics, and we try to kind of size the different, you know, take advantage of the best wood for the different applications. Wood's kind of a unique material in that, depending on the direction you load it, it has different properties. So if you're loading it perpendicular to the grain, it has one property. If you're loading it parallel to the grain, it has another. And if you're bending, it has another. So we use a lot of hardwoods. We use Southern Pine. We have an American Wood Council that publishes the National Design Standard we use for design. We got probably 12 to 15 hardwood species we use. And we've got a supplier who is a certified grader, and he grades it for us, inspects it, we get it, it's already rated, tells us what floor to put it on. I've got, you know, on the drawings, I tell them what floor, what size post, what species can be put in. Oh, interesting. interesting. Can, can you divulge any of that so to kind of know exactly what kind of species go into different areas? Well, I'm sure there's the, the probably some thing, forestry nerds yeah. out there that probably like to know. The, the two things we're really specific on as far as wood species, oak. When On the seal plates, when you're loading a post, a typical post could have 20,000 pounds of pressure on and it's sitting on an oak seal plate. That's the only species that can really handle that kind of weight without being crushed. Mm. So we're very specific. First two levels are always oak seal plates. Any of the wood in there treated no. in any way? No. No. We've seen that mistake made. The treating process kind of... I don't degrade may, may not be the right word, but makes it weaker. And mm. we've seen many times it where the can, post will yes. push right through the through the plate. The big enemy is moisture. We we've got to keep the wood dry, but that's that's a, another 
story, but let's the talk other, about it. <laughs> the, well, the other species we were very particular on is the uh, dunnets, the four by fours that the barrels sit on. We specify southern pine. It's got a little more elasticity in it. It gives a little bend before it breaks. A little warning. It's also more stable, and we can get straighter, truer members out of it. So, the, and that's really the only wood we compete compete on the commercial market for. Southern pine. Yeah. Do you have to go in there and replace it, or has it got a pretty long life? We keep have it dry. occasions when it dries, it'll dry crooked. We'll have to replace it. Yeah, so we yeah. put in, and most of our wood is green. We just get so much, and there's such big members that you really can't dry it like you would get at your local lumber yard, which doesn't really cause issues unless it's kind of weird that a lot of times the distillers are right on us when we build, and they're putting the barrels in like the next day when we finish. And for some reason, the wood will kind of dry straight and true when it's loaded, but occasionally we'll get one built a couple months beforehand. And if it's during the summer, that wood dries out, not loaded, it'll start twisting some. And then we have to go back in and, and change out. We've had to change out like 200 posts before in one of wow. those houses. When you're building for a distiller, is it like you're building with a home builder and you're like, and uh, you can get this wood post for this amount of money? swatches of wood. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we have had, a selection? Or? We had one client who who told us he, he wanted nothing but Southern Pine in his warehouse. And we... He paid a premium for it, and we we built it for him. And heck, that was ninety ninety three or ninety five, and the, and the house is still in good shape. That's so. great. Yeah, what I think does, we still used oak on the sill plates. So. Nice. What does it cost to build a warehouse? Is it I like a square foot cost. We usually it price it per barrel. Kind of depends on size. You get a lot of economies of scale if you go big or small. And there's actually, believe it or not, several options. You know, stuff you can do like how you load the barrels in and how many lights you want, if it's sprinkled, not sprinkled, things like that. But we're usually south of about $150 a barrel space, depending on what size you are. I always answer that question with... It depends. Yeah. No, it, 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 it costs less to build the warehouse than to buy the empty barrels that you put in the warehouse. <laughs> ah, that's a what's funny, point. you hear the distillers that it's it, between you all and Vendome, they're just always like saying, it's got so much. It's really the barrels. It is the barrels, and and my, I counter that argument. If we hadn't developed ways to build these things, they'd be paying a whole lot more money for them than That's they do right. now. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing you kind of talk about is is the NMB being moisture. Yeah, and is there? I know because with people probably understand is like with barrels, you have stave seasoning where you take them outside and you kind of reduce the moisture that goes into them. Is there any waiting period that you all are doing to make sure that you can get rid of the moisture in the wood before you start using it, or it's like just kind of like take it as you get it, and we got to start using it. All the design standards that we used are based on green wood. So the wood being in there in a green situation, it's not going to exceed design stresses. So we're going to be in good shape there. So as the wood dries, it gets nothing but stronger. The weakest that warehouse is is the day we turn it over to them. It's only going to get stronger as it ages. So mostly moisture you're concerned about is like a hole in the roof or something, like where you get a leak and you're not necessarily worried about moisture in the wood evaporating out and whatnot yes and no ventilation you need ventilation good ventilation in any any wood structure right wood will absorb any moisture in there relative humidity is a key issue in these warehouses so if you've got no airflow and you've got a high humidity in the warehouse that wood's going to absorb it we've been in older warehouses where windows haven't been maintained and we've gone in and checked Wood moisture content is 24, 23%. Is that high? That is high. 20 is supposed to be the max for a structural wood. 
30% is the maximum of wood is saturated at that point. So anything over 20, you start reducing the strength of that wood. Do you all design the ventilation system or the distilleries or do they know like, okay, we want this much, just based on our experience, we feel like this much airflow gives us a better product or this or that, or, or they kind of lean on you? They kind of lean on us and we provide as many windows as we can. We use ridge vents. It's all natural ventilation. It, you get a chimney effect as the heat rises, and if you get airflow, you get airflow around the warehouse, you'll get a real nice chimney effect and ventilate the building. Now, as it got bigger, we noticed some problems. As it got wider, we weren't getting the chimney effect in the center of the warehouse, so we upped our game there and added additional vents in the end walls that we hadn't had. Yeah, okay. different distillers have different ideas. I mean, some distillers don't have any ridge venting. They want to hold the heat in there. And we always do the foundation vents, though. I mean, they work. I went into one house where they happened to be closed, and the barrel was sweating on the bottom. And all we had to do was simply open the foundation vent. That little bit of air movement kind of dried it out. So it's amazing how that happens. I mean, you can imagine if when you build a house here in Kentucky, if you had an attic space that's no heating and air, you got to have ventilation there. If you cut that off, the wood's going to degrade, and you're going to have major problems. It's it's the same thing, just on a bigger scale on a, on a rick house. One of the things that I have noticed in like visiting a lot of different warehouses over the years is that some of them will have like a little hurricane tie at the top to protect the roof and some will not. Is there a rationale for that or just some people don't really care? Codes change. So like yeah. years ago, they may not have required that. Nowadays, they require that. In fact, I think they just up the wind speeds. We had a couple of roofs blow off. And we've just been adding more and more structure up there, mainly around the perimeter to, to kind of hold the wood down around the edges. Because once it, that's kind of the weak link, it'll start pulling up there. And once it goes, it's like a kite. So we really try to anchor it around the perimeter. And the hurricane straps, like you would see on any house, has become pretty standard just holding that down. Mm, so these older ones, do you have to go in some of these older warehouses and modernize them sometimes? They really haven't done a lot of that for whatever reason. No, I guess they their thinking is that house has been there for 50 years and hadn't had a problem. Mm. The only issue is if roof leaks start happening, and a lot of times these warehouses are out of sight, out of mind, and wood gets wet, it can get weak. And we have seen where we've had some failures because of the wood had just gotten wet and weak. Do they require annual inspections on these? Or They're not required, but we recommend them highly. Yeah. In fact, we... <laughs> Because you all do them? Is that why? We all <laughs> <Yeah>. can. <laughs> it's a revenue model. That's what my AC guy yeah. says. He's like, you have somebody come out and check out your AC every year. Let me guess, it's you? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but they won't change your filters. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. So exterior-wise, like aluminum skin versus stone or brick, what, what are people wanting these days? Uh, you can put whatever you want on them. I mean, the metal skin without insulation kind of does the best for, I guess, the heat gain, which is what you're trying to get is the thermal you know, changes there, but you could put stone on them. Uh, you've probably seen the ones like at Marshtown Bourbon with the glass and, you know, you're starting to see more, uh, I guess Heaven Hill's got a big one with glass and they're beautiful to look at anything you want. Yeah. It gets hot through those glasses. Like Dan was doing temperature readings with the light coming in on those glass barrel, how much hotter it was compared to like inside the rig. It was fascinating. I like to see how, how those barrels will turn out. You said you built some in Texas or where do you design those differently because it's so hot and you're trying to like not get it so hot as as in Kentucky to slow down, I guess, you know, the aging or is it just the same thought? It's, it's still natural ventilation. And yes, it does age a lot faster in Texas because of the heat. Again, we had natural ventilation still. We weren't allowed to build as tall, which 
it kind of hurts a little bit. You need some height to get that stratification. What's stratification? The air, air, the hot air rises, cool okay. air. I'm just trying, I'm yeah. trying to dumb it down for myself. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you've probably been in a rick house. You go in the bottom floors, the temperature doesn't change near as much. I mean, you'll go in in the winter and it feels a little warmer in the bottom floors. Summer, it feels cooler. But if you go up to the top floor in the summer, it could be 120 degrees. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, so yeah. the warehouse kind of just ages differently where you are in the warehouse. Kind of a unique aspect of it. I think I've told this story a thousand times, so bear with me, Kenny. But I used to have, we'd eat around Heaven Hills rick houses in high school and you'd always pop around the window on the first floor and it felt like AC was coming out. Yeah. You know, it was like, ah, relief. You know, it was, it was amazing. And I guess that's that stratification you were talking about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's producing cool air, is yeah. that what you're trying to tell me? That's no, right. We need some stratification it's in here. all right? relative. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing, kind of talking about the ventilation side of things with the windows and everything like that, pretty much everything that I've ever seen is, it's all, there are manual windows. Like there's somebody that says go and open them, close them and stuff like that. Right. I'm assuming 90% of the time people are just leaving these open right. all year round. Right. Is there any, anybody that said, we'd love to figure out some sort of automated way that we can open and close these based on the time of the day? Or I don't know if anybody's ever asked for a smart Rick house. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon. The farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns, from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. Is there anybody that said, we'd love to figure out some sort of automated way that we can open and close these based on the time of the day? Or I don't know if anybody's ever asked for a smart Rick house, but maybe that day will come to you. have Alexa. Well, they've, asked, they, they've asked for it. Yeah. Okay. It's just yeah, cost is a cost concern. Cost was prohibitive, yeah. Because then you got to get like XP stuff and all that. Yeah. Because I'm assuming it'd be like electric motors or something. Yeah, low, yeah. Some, some low voltage, but you've got... 400 some windows in a warehouse on a big house is that many and by the time you just get them all together we've looked at it the cost adds up quickly now they are starting to add smart stuff like you know moisture meters you know different thermal meters to kind of just try to see what's really going on in the house you're starting to see that more and more 
do you all do the heat controlled or the climate controlled? We do. We do do that with uh, one of our clients. Yes. Does that propose any challenges when you when you are making? Because when you walk into a heat controlled warehouse, you just see bars or these steam jackets or whatever they are. They just seem like they kind of interfere with a natural flow of the warehouse, especially when you hit your head on it walking out. You know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the way we do it, we just go in and like spray foam insulate the walls and roofs, and they have almost like a big hot water heater that kind of put pipes underneath the floor and they're they're typically the one we work with are just heating the house so they're not trying to cool it as well so mm. just kind of the ground heat kind of going up and i think there's a fan that kind of moves the air a little bit in our in our brace house uh kind of access chimneys but yeah so it's like a heated tile floor yeah kind of kind of sort of maybe yeah. a redneck way yeah <laughs> yeah the, the issue a lot of the old timers tried to heat warehouses but what you get into and you kind of dry the wood out a little bit more so you uh, what i've always heard is you get more a little bit more angel share loss so, mm-hmm. but I guess they kind of weigh, you know, the difference aging versus if there is more losses or not. So it's a lot of, I'm sure people are trying to quantify the science behind the maturation, but it does seem like it's a lot of art, you know, because you can get a honey barrel here and then right next to it's not. And, and, and why is that? Well, you know, all these distillers, they have their own little formulas, right? They're all playing with the same ingredients for the most part, corn, secondary grain and barley and some barrels. And to get their final product, they all have these little things, like maybe they had a dent in their still, and they when they get a new still, they put it the, the same dent there. Like you all are a part of that equation. You know, you're a part of making sure these companies get the flavor profile they want. And I know you all are on NDAs, but is there a client that you can talk about, give us a like a fun little story with what they wanted to do? You know, I wouldn't. You know, something fun. You don't have to name them by name. You don't. Just like an instant. <laughs> that's where fair. Like, yeah, that's even better. You don't have to name them by name. Uh, one of our clients doesn't want any ventilation out of the roof. You know, they want to just hold as much heat in there as possible. And I guess they think that the the more heat there makes more of the magic happen. Like I said, another one ha- puts just heat in the warehouse. They don't want it to get down too low of temperature. We have seen kind of, as Kevin mentioned earlier, the, the bigger warehouses, we're seeing less airflow in the middle and starting to see some issues. So some people are wanting us to kind of maybe narrow the warehouse out and try to maximize aging potential with uh, barrels per acre as well. I'm trying to think if there's any particular kind of oddball questions I, um, that may answer your question even better. We got one client that will not go over six high. Oh, yes. Yeah. There's one client likes to kind of keep them low lying. So. Because that's all, every warehouse they have is like that, and they're afraid if they... It's cheaper to build up rather than out, mm-hmm. but they don't want to. But they think that's their magic sauce. Yeah, they don't want to change their Four Roses is a single story. Correct. So, correct. Yeah. Donald, you had mentioned how these, these massive ones are creating some issues with airflow in the middle, and you're trying to make, trying to make them narrow. How is it really an issue? I guess that's what I'm trying to understand. Is, is it a building issue? Is it a product issue? Like, who, who thinks that it's an issue if it's not getting the airflow that they think? Well, they one thing they're seeing is the barrel hoops you know alcohol vapors are heavier than air so they settle in the center of these bigger houses you're seeing some phenomenon where the barrel hoops are rusting it's a weird looking rust like stalactite so much so that sometimes the barrels are failing and if a distillery kind of loses a whole barrel that becomes a problem we need to figure out how to how to solve that so you know we've looked at making the foundation vents bigger you know we're looking at kind of narrowing the house up because we're not seeing that phenomenon as much in like the twenty thousand barrel houses that you know they're more like 90 feet wide whereas the big ones we build are about 120 feet wide yeah we had a request to make them it was always eight twenty thousand barrels were houses were 18 19 barrels wide on each side of the aisle when we bumped up to fifty thousand barrels they said well we want 
to put a whole truckload in one rack. So we need racks to be 25 barrels wide. And then at a 12 feet to each side of the warehouse, that kind of became the standard for the big house, 25 barrels wide. And But we're seeing some, some not so favorable results right now. But Interesting. Could you add just like fans or like that ventilation? can, but I think you get into issues with uh, permitting with the EPA because they're kind of looking at the angels share is kind of a natural occurrence when you do natural ventilation if you do force ventilation they're kind of looking at that differently and also when you do force ventilation i think you dry that wood of the barrel out a little bit more and maybe get some angel share loss so Hmm. you know there's a lot of give and take in this industry and one kind of issue is when you build a warehouse and you want to age bourbon for six eight ten years whatever it may be you really don't know exactly what changes you made, how it's going to affect the product until right. you get six, eight, ten years down the road. It, it makes it difficult. There's, I mean, some of our clients are starting to like hire companies that'll do like models of these and airflow and different things. That's kind of interesting to see that data. It's really nothing shocking that I would it's everything you would expect. But you know, back in the old days, you'll see a lot of times they would try to turn the warehouses. I guess it would run them east and west, if, or no, north-south, and they would try to maximize heat gain where the sun would come up and down, and then our prevailing winds come from the west, and therefore open the windows, you get more air blowing in and that kind of thing. And ultimately, it's not rocket science how all the aging happens. It's it's thermal differential and having the airflow around the barrels and, and whatnot. That's kind of, Fred, to your point about palletized warehouses, I agree with you. They stuck them in so tight, you're not getting that airflow. And that's kind of the beauty of the, the rickhouses is they're kind of an open structure for that. And again, we're kind of talking about the bigger warehouses. So the bigger, wider you go, the middle of that house, you're getting a little bit less airflow in there. Now, one of the things that I know has happened in the last 20 years is that a lot of these foreign-owned companies that have distilleries will bring in their construction crews to do their warehouses. And then they get to the like halfway point and they're like, oh man, this is not looking like what's on over here at Heaven Hill or Jim Beam. This isn't as good as this is what we want. Do you all ever get called in to fix <laughs> other construction companies' mishaps? I don't know. I not so. really. No. no, Not on warehouses now. The distilleries themselves, we've been asked to. <laughs> Clean up some messes every <laughs> once in a while. Yeah. I'm sure it happens from time to time. I mean, time. but y'all's success has created an industry, and you see different construction companies. I know Kelly Constructions, building warehouses. You know, you have competition now that you didn't have before, and you all are, to me, are as much of a heritage brand to Kentucky Bourbon as Independent Stave and really as a distillery. You guys are as old as Heaven Hill for the most part. How do you all manage the future with all this competition coming in we try to live by the golden rule treat people like you like to be treated and we just you know constantly trying to innovate constantly trying to uh, understand what our client is after and give them that i mean price is always an issue so trying to find better more economical ways to give the client a good product at, at a good price and obviously there's a growing industry you know companies are going to want to get in here but we just try to keep doing what we're doing and try to do do good at it you were talking about the EPA and, you know, the big topic, it seems like, is this in Bardstown recently, is this fungus, you know, I can't remember what it's called. But Bedonia company. Is, are, are, is that been more of a concern that you all have to, like, try to f- work together with distilleries to create a solution to that problem? Or is this just like, that's uh, your all thing? Uh, we really haven't been engaged too much with the Kentucky bourbon industry in that. I mean, there's been studies and it's not harmful to people, though. I think everyone would agree it's a bit of a nuisance 
you know, I don't think the industry wants to go the route of like you see in California where you capture it because that could greatly affect the airflow and really affect the aging of the Kentucky bourbon. And I think that's one reason our Kentucky bourbon is growing is the quality of the product. And I think everyone's hesitant to do anything that might affect that. Some of our clients are, you know, really cleaning their warehouses and they think that that's going to kind of slow it down. I mean, it is a fungus and the more fungus is there, the more spores is released and the faster it can grow. We kind of leave that to the clients and, you know, if they ask us to do anything, they'll usually come to us and say, hey, we're thinking about this. Can you design it into your system? And then we'll, we'll work that into it. But as of to date, not, not a lot. Gotcha. One last technical question that I kind of thought of when you were talking about, basically, I, I kind of think about site planning, because before you build a brick house, you got to see exactly where it's going to be. Now, when we're talking about airflow and thermal dynamics, are you thinking like, oh, it's got to be up on a hill or it can't be in a valley or if the wind usually comes in this direction when you're talking about north versus south? Yeah. What kind of factors are like that go into just thinking of like what direction is this thing going to point or where it's going to sit? Well, typically cost is always a concern and a lot of the bigger distilleries are wanting barrels per acre so they're buying land and fitting as many warehouses as economical to fit on there i have heard from several clients again nothing not rocket science you get up on a hill you get more airflow and down in the valley you get less so you know more moisture whatever so being up on a on a hillside and facing that kind of north to south is probably optimum but, I mean, Kentucky bourbon's great when it's not in an optimum warehouse either, so it's not like they don't age pretty good e- either way. It's, uh, you know, and everybody can't have the most optimum site for every warehouse, as many warehouses that are going That's up. That's why those Willett Family Estate purple tops, you know, are so valuable. <laughs> On top of that <laughs> hill, yeah, it's yeah, the big. windiest spot in Nelson County. I tell you, from spraying yards, it's like you have to get there right at at dawn because otherwise it just starts to get too windy up there no drip you don't want any drift don't want any drift no don't want to contaminate the whiskey well fellas this has been a fun conversation to be able to kind of dive into your bread and butter which is as fred said it's very integral part to this industry because there is so much that i want to say it gets overlooked because it's such a beautiful thing but it's something that it's a fun conversation to have when we talk to bourbon geeks out there about this is just something that is the magic. It's part of the process. It's something that people don't, I don't want to say take it for granted, but it's something that is a integral part to just whiskey yeah. and the bourbon business, especially about here in Kentucky as well. So thanks for sharing some of your insights and Kevin, you know, getting into the, the engineering, the structural side of things as well, because I'm sure there's people out here that listen to this that are in the construction world too, that find it really really interesting okay last one now that i think about it plum bobs for anybody that out there has probably walked through a rick house and they just look around they're like what's this thing swinging from a string go ahead and explain that one real quick for anybody out there that's new well a plum bob is just simply a weight hung from a string that's going to hang because of gravity straight down and we'll, we'll hang it when we build a new warehouse we put like a target at the bottom and kind of zero it there and the warehouse will slightly shift over time. I don't you know exactly why that is. Maybe it's loading. Maybe it's phase of the moon. I don't know. But it's good to kind of watch that. And if you start seeing it move a lot, then there you know could be an issue. And some of the problem warehouses we've seen from years past, you, you'll kind of see that house keep moving in one direction. You know, I'm actually meeting with a company that's developed like a digital way to monitor these things later today. But sometimes the old timers knew exactly what they were doing. It's hard to kind of beat that kind of thing. You can spend a lot of money and spend data to kind of track this warehouse when you can just simply have a plumb bob on something that's probably not going to have an issue anyway. So, uh, and in fact, uh, Kevin, correct me if I'm wrong, but discus or some code basically back in the day dictated you have to have these plumb bobs to monitor these things. I think yeah, I've seen yeah. that before. FM Engineering, who has used 
by most distillers as a basis for a lot of their design criteria requires plumb lines in a warehouse. When I first got to Jim Beam, I was looking through some old file cabinets and I run across the file cabinet and they had just bought national distillers at the time, 86, 87. So they inherited national distillers engineering staff and got all their files. One file cabinet was called Plumb Bob Reports and I'm civil background surveyor. I know what a plumb bob is, right? It's just what you use to mark your point. I asked the, the manager of engineering, what are these plumb bob reports? He said, oh, these are warehouses that monitors movement in the warehouse. And I said, oh, really? I didn't realize you had to do that. And, you know, I was very young. He said, yeah, the, the warehouses move with the phases of the moon. <laughs> now, <laughs> See, I couldn't tell Donald was just, you know. No, no, that's where that's he that's got that, yeah, that's from what, that yeah. story. Yeah. But I don't know if I believe it, but I don't discount anything at this <laughs> <Yeah>. point. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> Yeah, well, thank you for having us. I mean, I love talking about maturation. Yeah. I personally think it's one thing that separates Kentucky bourbon from other bourbons is our humidity and, and temperature and uh, climate, I guess, we have here uh, in Kentucky. And I think it's an underappreciated part of what makes Kentucky bourbon so great. So I'll, I'll, I'll add to that. I think what makes Kentucky bourbon great more than anything are the people. The people who are making it and building and creating. The, you don't have this talent in the state of Washington, Oregon. While they're growing, they're doing well. They don't have the talent. And I think that's one of the reasons why you see places like Colorado do well, because they have brewing talent. To me, Kentucky bourbon is not so much about where it's at and where it's located. It's about the people. And you all, you two are such an important part of the entire story of bourbon, what everybody drinks at home and what they enjoy. So, yeah. I mean, do you have uh, a favorite rig house out there? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> the favorite oh, rig yeah. house. Which I guess one? the the last one we finished and got paid for. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait. Has there been one you haven't been paid for? <laughs> no. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, you got to go and reseize it, right? Yeah, it's <laughs> like, who do, you, who do you call when you don't get that uh, bill paid? Right, <laughs> acquired up front. They're smart. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Well, Donald, Kevin, thank you again for coming on the show today and everything like that. If people ever want to see stuff that you're building or follow along, if you have social media or anything like that, anything you want to plug for people how to get in contact with you? Uh, we don't. Unfortunately, you know, I guess fortunately we don't have to market a lot. And I guess I'm kind of still old school, not doing social media, but maybe one Stay day. Away. <laughs> we'll Stay away for as you. long as you can, man. Yeah, there you go. Ryan will do it for you. We'll be out yeah. there bothering your, you know, your workers. Like, here, show us how the jig works. <laughs> Make a reel on it. Well, you could probably have a show kind of like you see on TV about yeah. stuff, Bill. There's some stuff goes on out there. Oh, we got, oh, we got sure. some we got some great people. Several characters, too. Oh, there's a ton yes. of characters. I know a few off the top of my head. I won't name them by names, but they're great right. people. Yep. Well, next time you're driving through Bardstown and you see one of these structures go up and you see the skeleton, now you know the voices behind the uh, the engineering and everything behind it. So, fellas, thank you again for coming on the show. And if you like the show, want to help support it, talk about it, leave a review, share it with a friend, follow us on all the socials, follow us our good buddy over here, Fred Minnick, as well. But with that, cheers, everyone. We'll see you next week. Pocket sucks. Toodles. Thank you. Thank you.